Well, what a pleasure it is to be with you and a privilege to be with you. Congratulations to you. Six years, that's uh, that's getting to be a little bit of time. That's not, you know, I have a church we used to belong to before we came to California. I think it was 120 years or so that had been going. So I didn't quite make that yet, but uh, anyway, six years. Thank the Lord for the work that's being done there. I can remember the first time I came, you weren't even a church yet. At that time, you were kind of a youth program, and uh, Pastor Shen had me to come and talk about dispensationalism and covenant theology. In fact, I even remember the first question after I was done. We had a, a kind of a question and answer time, and somebody said, okay, you're talking a lot about historical grammatical interpretation, literal interpretation, but just why do we do that? Well, that's a really good question. You know, it was just just really excellent. You could tell that people were thinking. So it's uh, it's been a joy all the time to come and minister you in any way that we possibly could. And then uh, the conference and the ordination council and service and Israel. Uh, Pastor Shin and his wife and my wife and I, uh, we got one really cool thing happened when we were traveling back. We kind of hung around a little bit. They asked us to hang around a little bit, and then they put us in first class from uh, where was that? From Jerusalem, from uh, Israel, at least to London. Is that what it was? Anyway, that I never had that kind of experience before, so that was fun. But we had a great time together on the Israel trip, and it was a pleasure to be a part of that time with the Shins. You know, when Linda and I moved out here, you know, we kind of really did a crazy thing. We'd taught in for 25 years and then also had gone to seminary in the Midwest, mainly in Minnesota, lived in Minnesota 30 years. So we had all of our friends and we had all of our graduates that were out around that area in Minnesota. And then some guy by the name of Dick Mayhew called us up and just really kind of messed our life up. You know, <laughs> He invited us to come out here and look over the place and it was so exciting to come and see what God was doing at the Master's Seminary. So we felt the Lord was leading us out here. And so we came with a lot of enthusiasm, but we left our children back there. They were grown. I mean, we didn't leave little kids back there. <laughs> we left our children back there and uh, uh, all of our friends and all these graduates. For 25 years, we'd been teaching already and uh, came out here. Didn't know hard, you know, we knew hardly anybody, but... It's been a real pleasure, you know, to get to know people while we've been out here and especially some of our graduates and to become friends and be a part of this church in different ways. And so we just thank the Lord. I can see that you're growing, you know, you've got these nursery things going on. Didn't used to have that. That was, uh, this is kind of a development. I think I mentioned it before, but this church is a little bit like, uh, it might be a little bit like my mom and dad's Sunday school class. Uh, it was called uh, the 3M Sunday School class. When they joined that class, it was the young marriage class. And when they left that class, it was the old, old, old people's class. You know, it just never, 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 nobody ever left that class. And maybe that's the way this church will be, you know, start out really kind of college-like, you know, and just kind of grow gradually, and pretty soon you'll be doing shuffleboard and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, if the Lord gives you that, that'd be great, you know, to have that opportunity to just minister over a period of time together and 
Yeah, the Lord's wrecking our lives. Well, the, the message this morning is not a Valentine's message. I'm sorry if you were expecting that. But uh, the message is, and I think I'm kind of almost preaching to the choir on this. I know this is a very balanced church, but I just thought, are you looking now off into the next six years or whatever it happens to be? What are some things, a couple of things at least, you could kind of focus on as maybe goals in your life? Pretty hard, I think, to keep a certain balance, the Bible talks about, between, oh, you know, really taking a stand and, and, and really doing what God wants you to do as far as, you know, you know, the book of Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith. You know, there's a certain militancy that's involved in that. Militancy is the idea that there are certain doctrines that are important and you can't Change your doctrine just because of the latest thing that comes along the line, the latest trend. A lot of churches are trendy. Whatever comes up, you do it, you know. If there's something new, you do it. So, but the Bible tells us, especially when it comes to the, the apostles' doctrine, that we're to earnestly contend for the faith. And militancy means that we believe that certain doctrines are essential to Christianity. Back in the 1920s, a man by the name of Gratia Machen wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And the title of the book was intended to say that liberalism is not really Christianity. Two are different things. And so we believe that there are certain doctrines that are essential to Christianity. And then there's a certain almost outrage at apostasy, as people turn away from God and go away from the deity of Christ and the inspiration of the Bible and things such as that. So, standing up for the truth. The Bible tells us to do that. And I know this church has really committed itself to do it. On the other hand, the Bible, when it's given the qualifications for a pastor, says that he ought not to be, the old, old King James says, he ought not to be pugnacious. He ought not to be a fighter. So how do you keep those things together? Earnestly contend for the faith. Even sometimes the Bible talks about confrontation. The Bible tells us that in some cases we even have to separate from others. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And yet at the same time, how do we maintain this gracious, happy, loving spirit that moves us to unity within the body with other brothers? How do we keep that balance between the two? I think there's a lot involved in this. Pastor Shin and I, in fact, we went through a whole course together on contemporary evangelicalism and talked about some of the different issues and things that are involved in that. But it seems to me that the Lord in Matthew chapter 7 here just gives us a a really simple and dramatic way to at least remind us of what's involved in the balance in this passage that we read, Matthew chapter 7 and verses 1 through 6. Now, Matthew chapter 7 is found in that section of the book of Matthew that we call the Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful, wonderful passage. It is almost pivotal in learning what righteousness is all about. I read a story that kind of illustrates it. During the first quarter of the 19th century, toward the end of Beethoven's life, there was an unknown musician that made a small alteration in the construction of the harpsichord that changed all of music. 
The strings of a harpsichord, I'm told, are plucked by a small hook that produces a sound kind of like a harp. And this musician, in his change, replaced the hook with a hammer so that the string was struck rather than plucked. And this very small alteration made all the difference in the world musically for the dynamic range of the instrument was was greatly increased. And, of course, the harpsichord became a piano, right? This was a change from a harpsichord, the invention of a piano, and, and all things have been different in music since that time. Well, that's kind of the way the Sermon on the Mount is. I mean, it's just pivotal. It's just, it's just the kind of sermon that reaches into your heart and grabs you. You can't get away from it. It's profound. It's searching. It's alarming. There's no possibility of escape. We can't hide from the light of God that he puts down on our life in the great Sermon on the Mount. And basically what the Lord is doing in this section is to tell us what real righteousness is all about, what real spirituality is all about. It's vastly superior to the Pharisees, and really most of this sermon is you have in the background the Pharisaical type of righteousness, and the Lord is explaining correct righteousness, godly righteousness as compared to what the Pharisees were saying. But the Lord says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll in no ways enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the big idea, the, the proposition of the sermon. You've got to have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And they, in a lot of ways, were very righteous people. But it's a warning to us as well to make sure that our view of righteousness is in agreement with what Christ is teaching here in this passage. The specific verse that we read here, the verses in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, teach us a vital lesson for living as Christians in the 21st century. Basically, what it's teaching us is that genuine righteousness is neither, is neither censorious and hypercritical, nor is it naive, on the other hand. There's a big balance, important balance that we need to learn and to have in our life, not only as individuals, but as a church. It seems to me that there's a real tendency, isn't there, for religious people to be either on the one hand extremely judgmental or on the other hand piously naive. But this passage tells us, let me state it negatively first of all, that you must be neither censorious nor naive. Or to put it positively, you must be gracious and discerning. And so the Lord has these two demands for balanced living and for taking the stand that we need to look at this morning. First of all, the passage teaches us that we must be gracious in verses 1 through 5. We must be gracious. And I'm not even sure if the word gracious is exactly the right word. To summarize this kind of righteousness that the Lord is talking about here, I thought about the word magnanimous. Do you know the word magnanimous? I don't think anybody really uses that word. Magnanimous made up of magna, anima in Latin, right? Magnanimous, large, spirited. Maybe that's what the Lord is trying to tell us here in this passage. We're supposed to be large-hearted, large-spirited, but gracious. We'll use the word gracious. And... In this passage, verse 1 and 2, he tells us that to be gracious, we must not be censorious. But now, when he says, judge not that you be not judged, 
I think we need to start out by talking about what this passage is not saying, what the Lord is not saying when he says, judge not that you be not judged. It's, you know, it's so easily confused. Anytime you try to take a stand and do what's right, point out some evil, somebody will come to you and say, oh, oh, but we're not supposed to judge. We're not supposed to judge. Like right here in this passage, judge not that you be not judged. So what is the Lord not saying when he says, judge not that you be not judged? I think, first of all, he's not saying that we should never identify right and wrong. You know, just kind of be, I don't know, what would it be? Blobs, I guess. You know, just undiscerning blobs. He's not saying we should never, we should never identify right and wrong. wrong. I mean, why are we to say nothing about Adolf Hitler, for example, about the terrorists? Or theologically, are we to say nothing about the cults or other forms of apostasy or even hypocrisy or quarreling or even intolerance in this postmodern age? I mean, are we to say nothing that's wrong with those kinds of things? But the Bible is very, very clear that there are some things that we're supposed to identify as right and wrong. Let me just mention some of these. Verse number 6, as a matter of fact, in the same passage, Jesus negatively valued some people, calling them, Dogs and pigs. A little further in chapter 7, verse 15, the Lord says, Watch out for false prophets. In Galatians 1.8, If anyone comes to you not teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, let them be accursed. Philippians 3.2, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, and even the apostle of, of love. The Apostle John in 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. Of course, we're supposed to identify right and wrong. So that's not what the Lord is saying. The Lord is also not saying that we should never practice biblical or gracious confrontation when it's appropriate. For example, church discipline you start a church discipline case, somebody's going to say, well, judge not, that you be not judged. But does the Lord, is that what he's saying? Well, again, in Matthew chapter 18, right, the Lord tells us about church discipline. He outlines it, tells it how to go through the process. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the Apostle Paul says that the local church was to hand over this certain promiscuous man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Or in Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So he's not saying, the Lord's not saying here in this passage, you ought not to do gracious confrontation when it's appropriate and according to the Word of God. And then thirdly, the Lord is not saying that we should not have strong convictions. Of course, we live in this postmodern world, right, where strong convictions are, it's okay for you as long as you don't think they're right for everybody else. If you have a conviction, this is your belief system, all right, that's good for your community, it's great for your church, great for your evangelical coalition or whatever you want to call it, but, but there is no such thing as a meta-narrative. There's no such thing as a worldwide worldview, not a universal worldview. There's not universal truth. That may be truth to you, but it's not truth to everybody. And we live in this world that doesn't like people to have strong convictions and to stand up for that which is right. And if a person does, then usually he's attacked as having 
as being a very arrogant person. What kind of arrogance can you have that you can stand for truth and believe that there is such a thing as universal truth? We watched that with uh, John MacArthur on Larry King Live shows from time to time, where John, I think in a very gracious but firm manner, stands up for biblical truth, says the right things, and I'm told that, you know, the next week is just full of vicious emails describing him as the most arrogant person they've ever seen on television. I can remember there was a funeral one time at Grace Community Church. And uh, as, the, as John was preaching, this person was telling me, behind me there was this lady. She was amazed that anybody could take this kind of a position, that there was a way to heaven, and this was the way to heaven. And she kept saying almost loudly, he can't say that. He can't say that. Somebody's got to stop him. He can't say that. Oh, you know, people can't imagine it. There's people who stand for the truth. I read a uh, little article about John Piper. John Piper had written in the newspaper that it was a loving thing for Christians to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, even the Jewish people, because, according to 1 John 5:12, whoever has a son has life, and whoever does not have a son of God does not have life. And several clergy wrote to the paper and said, quote, Unfortunately, arrogant is the word to describe any attempts at proselyting. Thoughtful Christians will disassociate themselves from any such effort. We're not supposed to have strong convictions. We're not supposed to have an idea that this stands for truth. Actually, you know, let me ask you, why did you become a Christian? I remember reading from Francis Schaeffer one time, and Francis Schaeffer said, uh, why is Francis Schaeffer a Christian? Is it because it makes him feel good? Is it because he gets to be around good people and his conscience is not so bothered anymore? Is that why Francis Schaeffer is a Christian? And his answer was, no, I'm a Christian because Christianity is the truth. This is the truth of what life is all about. And if truth is precious, then to speak it is a necessary part of love. It's a part of salvation. It's a part of sanctification. It's a part of joy in this life. And speaking the truth is important and is an essential part of love. The Bible's clear again on this. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, but with all long suffering. Or Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man disregard you. So, the Bible, the Lord himself, is not saying that we should not have strong convictions. Of course we should. So what is the Lord saying? When he says, judge not that to be must not judged. There is a kind of censorious judgment that the Lord is here forbidding. So what we learn from this is, is apparently that there is such a thing as a good judgment and there's also such a thing as bad judgment. There's bad criticism. There's good confrontation. There, there's a difference. You can do either bad judgment or good judgment. I looked up the word. I tried to find if there's any difference in the word judge, but there isn't. Uh, John 7, 24 
Stop judging by mere appearances. That would be bad judgment. And make a right judgment. Same word. So judgment doesn't have any particular connotations in the word itself. But this word judgment can mean this censorious, judgmental, condemning kind of spirit that sometimes we who want to take a stand and stand for the truth find ourselves embracing. Uh, I, I think if there are four characteristics, four characteristics of the wrong kind of judgment, it would include, first of all, a wicked intent. The intent being to tear down somebody, to make them small and kind of build yourself up at the same time. A wicked intent. Then, I think in the second place, and I guess this is almost a parenthesis, but the judgment that's wicked that the Lord is talking about here is a, a judgment towards a brother or a sister in Christ. In this brief passage, these first few verses of this passage we read, three times we find the word brother in it. So this is especially talking about our attitude toward other members in our church and other Christians. And then what goes with a wrong kind of judgment is also an attitude, a spiritual haughtiness, an arrogance that goes with it. And I think number four, and we'll talk about this in a minute, would be hypocrisy. There's a hypocrisy that goes with it. So wicked intent toward a brother with an attitude of arrogance, spiritual haughtiness with a hypocritical life. Tearing down a brother in this arrogant way. This is well illustrated by the Pharisees. And again, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord contrasting his kind of righteousness with the Pharisees, saying you've got to have greater righteousness than what they have in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, what were they like? They were self-righteous. They were hypocritical. They had an unmerciful spirit. They had codified or codified the laws of Scripture into and turned them into little detailed things, which they rigorously applied to other people, but were pretty able to figure out how to get around them themselves. For example, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord talks about, they, they said, if anybody says Raka, he's in danger of going to the council. The word Raka just meant foolish person. But on the other hand, the Lord says, and this is the way I think it should be understood, the Lord says, but I'm saying to you, if anybody says thou fool, and, and that's what the Pharisees had done. They had figured out, you can say thou fool, you just can't say raka. Raka was on the index of prohibited words, you know. But, but as far as the Pharisees, they had another word they could say, which was all right. And Jesus, uh, analyzing their arrogant hypocrisy, said, you say raka, you say if somebody says raka, they go to the Sanhedrin, but I'm telling you, if anybody says, thou fool, like you are saying, you're in danger of hellfire. As you show your hypocrisy. I mean, they were hypocrites. They were arrogant. They were self-righteous, pompous. And they illustrate the kind of judgment that we're not supposed to have when it comes to our analysis of the religious situation. So here's this big test. Any kind of judgment we might have. Is our confrontation from a spirit of humility on our part with a desire to help our brother and sister or anybody else as far as that goes? Or is it 
censoriousness, defamation, haughty fault-finding. The Lord says, judge not that you be not judged. He has in mind the illustration of the Pharisees and their arrogant hypocrisy. And then in verse number two, you have this result of a censorious spirit in our lives, and that is that there's a stricter standard for you and me. For with the judgments you judge, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, with the same measuring stick you take to measure others, you're going to be measured by it as well. Again, the Lord's not saying that we should overlook sin, but we have to be careful that we don't set this censorious hypocritical judgment against other people because that's the kind of judgment that we're going to be held responsible to ourselves if we use that same measuring stick. And you know, when I was thinking about this, I don't think I want that when I stand before the Lord. Do you? I don't want some high standard that's not really what the Lord intended to be sort of applied to me. After my life here, I've done that very same censorious thing. So the Lord says, with the same measuring stick that you use to measure others, you'll be measured by it. There's a kind of censorious judgment that's forbidden. And then secondly, capital B, if you have a little outline there, to be gracious, we must not be hypocritical. And that's verses 3, 4, and 5 in the scriptures here. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye, or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. We must not be hypocritical. Here you have this hyperbole of the speck and the plank, or the speck and the log, or the speck and the joist, or the speck and the rafter, different ways it's translated from time to time. Well illustrated, I think. When I thought back on the Old Testament, the great illustration is King David himself, Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You remember what had happened. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then when things didn't work out, she was pregnant. He had her husband taken out in the battle and killed. And so King David was guilty of both adultery and murder. And so God had to send Nathan, and when Nathan showed up at the court. He didn't go directly to confront David, but he told him a parable, told him a story. There was this little family, very poor. They only had one lamb. But he had a rich neighbor, and the rich neighbor had a whole flock of sheep. But when the rich neighbor decided to sacrifice, he forcibly took that little lamb that belonged to the poor family and sacrificed it instead. Well, when David heard that story, he was incensed. Who would ever do such a thing as that? And, of course, Nathan pointed out, you're the man. You've just done that. David had this incredible beam in his own eye. And he was trying to pick out a little sawdust in this rich farmer's eye. You know Our inclination is to judge other people. Our inclination to judge other people for something far less wrong than our own faults. Let me say that again. Our inclination is to judge other people 
for far less wrong than our own faults. Somebody said we look at our brother's faults through a microscope. And we look at our own faults through the wrong end of a telescope. We can barely see our own faults. But, man, that brother, he's got lots of big faults. So if we are really concerned, folks, about being a church that stands for the truth and you know, tries to help other people stand for the truth and helps other churches stand for the truth, we would deal with any kind of wickedness and carnality that we would find in our lives, first of all. So how are we hypocrites? Sometimes we're spec detectives. You know, we play trivial pursuit with the life of another Christian. Or sometimes we're spec broadcasters. We're a Christian who finds some moat in another Christian and then just gossips about it all the time. Or maybe we'd be a spec enlarger. We find a speck in somebody else's life and we put it in the worst light and we exaggerate it as much as we possibly can. Again, the Bible is very clear about this. Romans chapter 14. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Who are you to judge another's servant. So the Lord is telling us here, if we're going to have really true righteousness, we need to, first of all, not be censorious, and secondly, we must not be hypocritical. Now, how do you apply this? You know, I'm, I'm really tempted now to turn into a teacher and uh, just have a little discussion here on application of this principle of, of judging not and what it means. I'm afraid... You may not enter into it with great enthusiasm, however. But what is it? How can we apply this passage? Judge this first part of the passage. Judge not that you be not judged. Obviously, it, it tells us as a church, as you look forward to your next six years, that you're going to try to make sure that there aren't beams in your own eyes before you go out to minister and help other churches and confront other people graciously and according to the Word of God. Yes, we should help others be more biblical, but we're not going to have any impact, right, if we have logs in our own eyes. I've seen that in my past. I've been in circles where, you know, they were, the churches were critical of maybe some other Christians a little bit too open, a little too loose, you know. But, man, they were always fighting and bitter themselves and things like Nobody's going to listen to them. So we've got to get that, make sure there's no... And we're always probably going to have specks in our own eyes. <laughs> we're not going to be perfect. But get the log out, at least. Get the log out, and then we can be a help to other people that have specks in their eyes and other churches. And Anybody want to tell me some other applications? Gossip, you know. And it's easy for us to gossip against other people that we come up with. What, you know, what we're finding out may be true, but it's just not necessary to spread it around to somebody else. Even within our own homes, I thought about that. Um, husbands, are you sure you've got the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your wife's eye, and vice versa? And parents, maybe 
Have you got the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your children's eyes and uh, teenagers? Have you got the log out of your own eye before you look at your parents and find the speck that's there? Again, same, same thing, right? I mean, we have to make sure that our lives are where they're supposed to be if we're going to uh, be of any help in any ministry in that way to other people. Jesus here again does not teach us to be blind to others' faults. He tells us, don't be censorious. If you're going to be gracious, if you're going to have a magnanimous, you're going to have a uh, just loving church, don't be censorious with all that's implied in that. And don't be hypocritical. And then the second lesson that he makes is that we must be discerning in verse number 6 in order to have this right balance and have a complete statement on the subject and the Lord brings a further principle to bear. Spurgeon said, the saints are not judges, but the saints are not simpletons either. And we need to be a discerning people to go along with what the Lord has already taught us in this passage. So he says in verse number 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and then tear you into pieces. Well, he has some really dramatic language here. You know, I did my THM thesis on... Uh, the teaching principles of Christ. And one of the uh, lessons that I learned was the Lord used this dramatic language. It's just, he's just full of metaphors and dramatic language. He says, for example, it's easier for a, rich, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. I mean, people, maybe there's interpretations that go along with that to explain it down a little bit, but it's just... It's just hyperbolic language. I mean, it's dramatic language that the Lord uses to make his points. And here he does. He uses two pictures. First is the dogs. And, you know, these dogs are not oldie or snoopy. You know, they aren't these (laughs) cute little dogs. These were wild dogs, vicious dogs. And some people think that the picture is based upon the blasphemous idea of taking a sacrifice there in the temple and throwing it off to these wild dogs around. But anyway, it's a wicked picture. And then you have the pigs. Unclean, wild, vicious, savage, abominable animals. Don Carson says, Jesus sketches a picture of a man holding a bag of precious pearls, confronting a pack of hulking hounds and some wild pigs. And as the animals glare hungrily, he takes out his pearls and sprinkles them in the street, thinking they are about to gulp some bits of food. The animals pounce on the pearls. But swift disillusionment sets in. The pearls are too hard to chew, quite tasteless and utterly unappetizing. So enraged, the wild animals spit out the pearls and turn on the man and tear him to pieces. So... Who are the dogs and the pigs in this story? What did you say? Again, I've I got to be a teacher here a little bit. What do you say? The, who are the dogs and the pigs? No names are necessary. So, I'll give you a start. I mean, it's got to be somebody that hates God, right? I mean, it's people that don't love the Lord, don't love His Word. It's people that are cultists, probably. It would be people that are apostates, theologically speaking, heretics. 
maybe theological liberals. Is that right? Is that what we're talking about here? What about the pearls? What are the pearls? Don't cast your pearls before these dogs and pigs. What are the pearls? What would you say? So far you haven't said anything, but uh, what would you say the pearls are? God's Word, precious truths. We're not talking here about not witnessing to the unsaved people. It's always right to be a witness and, you know, get down on our knees and pray with somebody and bring, lead them to Christ if we can do that. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about God's Word and the precious truths throwing down, down before people that really have our haters of, of God in the greatest sense of the word. You know, did the Lord ever hide truths from the dogs and the pigs? Well, the answer is yes, right? When we get to, uh, we trace through the book of Revelation, whenever he gets to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 11, the Pharisees had said, and they've led the people to say, this man is a demon-inspired false teacher. He does his miracles by the power of Satan. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 pronounces that curse against that generation of Jews. It's called the unpardonable sin, right? Remember that passage. And then after that, Matthew chapter 13, there's a whole series of parables. Why did the Lord use the parables? Yes, it was to help the disciples, but it was also to hide that, those truths, these precious truths from this generation now that had blasphemy turned against his very teaching and person. The unpardonable sin. So, when the Lord says, you ought not to cast your pearls before the swine and before the, the dogs, it's something like what he illustrated in his own life there. So, how does, what does this mean again to you and to me in our churches? I think it means we ought not to join religiously with theological apostates and other false religions and cults in order to fulfill the Great Commission, fulfill the Great Commission. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Pastor James will tell you more about it, I'm sure. I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to maybe do something political with uh, some false religion. For example, if you wanted to rally against the... Uh, abortion or something like that. But when we start talking about Great Commission, we start talking about doing mission work, we start talking about evangelism, to work with people that do not know the Lord is to cast our pearls before the swine, in my opinion. This is the reason why this church, I'm sure, does not participate in the ecumenical movement, doesn't join in with the World Council of Churches and National Council of Churches to do so would to be a wrong thing to do. And one other illustration came to my mind, and I might be, you know, I'm, this might be, I'm stretching the application here. But it just seemed to me, when I got to thinking about it, what, was it, what is it that I could do to throw my pearls, my pearls before the pigs and the dogs? I got to thinking about, you know, my thought patterns and my emotions and all that God wants of me that way, throwing them before 
wicked entertainment, things on television that we ought not to be watching, immoral soaps, you know, sitting there and allow those things to consume our mind, taking my time, I'm throwing my pearls before those people. seems to me that's uh, another application that we might make about that. So we're supposed to be discerning. How are we going to be discerning? Well, I think it means that uh, you're going to do some reading. You know, they've got to keep up with what's going on and try to find out what is happening in other circles. We don't need to major, major on this. I'm not saying that. But at least they have to be alert. I think it means that we may have to take some courses in our Bible institutes, learn doctrine well. The Bible talks about discerning false prophets, but we don't know our own doctrine. We don't know what a false prophet is. So it's important for us to have a good view of doctrine and theology. Maybe it means taking the adult Sunday school seriously. Maybe it means really listening to the pastor when he preaches God's word to us so that we can be discerning people and understand how not to throw our pearls before the pigs and the dogs. So here it is, six verses, teaches an important balance. I think it would help us if we can just keep these things in balance to really, it would help us to be a really greater witness for the Lord. Stated negatively, we must not be censorious, but we must not be naive. Stated positively, we must be gracious, magnanimous toward our brothers, but also discerning of wickedness and falsehood and apostasy. And you know, the Lord summarizes what he teaches in six verses in another place in one sentence, and it goes like this. You're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Let's pray, please. Lord, we ask your blessing now upon the word here. Thank you so much for this church, which does such a good job of teaching, teaching your word and has taken a good stand on the Word of God and upon the doctrine has earnestly contended for the faith in the six years in which it has been in existence. We also thank you, Lord, that this is a gracious church and a church that loves people and wants to see people come and be saved and become a part of the fellowship. And we, help, we pray, Lord, that you would just keep these features of your true righteousness to be characteristics of us individually as well as of our corporate fellowship as a local church. And so doing, honor and glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.